Welcome to the podcast of ideas. In mid-October at the Barbican in central London, we hosted the 14th of our annual Battle of Ideas festivals with 450 speakers on over 100 panels attracting an audience of about three and a half thousand people across the weekend, all keen to explore, understand and debate the important issues of our day. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be uploading audio and video from these discussions, so watch out for new posts on this podcast and our YouTube channel. The following session is titled All Change, Navigating the New Political Disruption, in which we ask the question, can we transform today's turbulence as an opportunity to shape the future, grasp the moment with hope and be inspired by a period that is resonant with possibilities? The whole issue around change is one of the key themes of the festival. I think we're all conscious of the fact that whether it's in politics and political parties, whether it's in technology in terms of some wildly unexpected votes, in terms of major institutions or the mainstream media, they all appear to be unravelling or changing in a rapid way. And that whole atmosphere of change can be slightly discombobulating, I think, on society, create a sense of uncertainty, and in many instances induces a kind of fear. There's certainly a lot of fear about the future if you read the commentators. So many people at the moment talking about return to the 1930s, or if you look at technology saying the robots are coming to take our jobs, people really worried about what kind of new parties will emerge to replace some of the old stagnating parties if you look around Europe and so on and so forth. But I I think what we wanted to explore was some of the more positive aspects of this or what exactly is going on. The alternative to change can be moribund stagnation. And I use a Harold Wilson quote in the blurb. Of course, most of the people that I said Harold Wilson to I hadn't heard of him, but um, Google him. Former Labour uh, leader who said, he who rejects change is the architect of decay. The only human institution which rejects progress is the cemetery. It's a nice cheerful thought. But there's no doubt about it that change has to mean risks. And there is, risks can be frightening and we're not sure what will happen. But it's also resonant of possibilities and the possibility of embracing new experiences and the excitement of taking risks. The panel are assembled just because I think they're interesting. They've written on all sorts of aspects of politics and the changes that are going on at the moment, but they might come at it, and probably will, from all sorts of different angles. So I'm going to introduce the panel in the order in which they're going to speak. We're going to first of all hear from Matthew Goodwin, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of Kent, a senior fellow of Chatham House and the author of Revolt on the Right, but most significantly in relation to this session, National Populism, the Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. One of the most thoughtful commentators to me 
in terms of why Brexit's happened, and also rare amongst academics, I think, in trying to want to understand it. I mean, often being associated with it because he's trying to understand it, rather than actually we all have an obligation to try and understand it, regardless of what way uh, anyone voted. We've then got Dr. Eliane Glazer, who is a writer and radio producer, a senior lecturer at Bath Spa University, an associate research fellow at Birkbeck University of London, and a BBC radio producer and broadcaster. Uh, Eliane regularly writes for The Guardian, for New Statesman, for The Independent. She's the author of Get Real, uh, and most recently, Anti-Politics on the Demonization of Ideology, Authority, and the State. We'll then be hearing from Professor Frank Verady, who's a sociologist and social commentator, public intellectual, internationally renowned, his latest book is How Fear Works, The Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, which uh, relates to this session, but also Populism and the European Culture Wars, again, very much related. But he's also, Eliane, the author of Authority, A Sociological History, so you can also chat about the authority question uh, afterwards because you have that in common. Last but no means least, uh, Stephen Kinnock, Labour MP for Aberfan. Oh, God, I'm from, yeah, I'm from Wales, so that's like a bad start. Uh, he's a, I know, I know. I can't pronounce anything. He's a member of the Exiting the EU Select Committee and uh, the EU Scrutiny Committee. Um, but significantly, and this is why I wanted him here, he's uh, the co-editor of a new book, Various of Britain, Purpose of Labour, Building a Whole Nation Politics to Reunite a Divided Country. And I think it's an attempt by Stephen and his colleagues to come to terms with what has happened and to look at where the Labour Party is now. But not just the Labour Party, I think it's more significant where the parties lie in the moment and where they're going to go forward. So it's got very much a future orientation and there's some really uh, excellent essays in there. So as I've said, the format is six to eight minutes each. Matthew. Okay, so I want to start with what I think is, a, is, is the interesting macro question that runs through a lot of the debates that we're having. And, and um, that's essentially this, which is when you look at things like Brexit and Trump and populism in Europe, five-star, Lager, Sweden Democrats, do these moments in the West signal that we are approaching the end of a period of volatility and churn? Or do they instead actually signal that we are nearer the beginning of a new period of great change and disruption? And that's a fairly simplistic but helpful uh, framing of the debate because implicit in that are a lot of arguments that we can see in our public debate. If you think it is the former, that we are nearing the end and we are about to enter a sort of new glorious era of uh, sort of liberalism rebooted, um, you probably like what I call the economist argument, which is that this is principally about generational change and this is about awkward, angry, old white men who are about to die, to be blunt, and who will be replaced by my students. I met my first years two weeks ago. They were born in 2000. They don't remember 9-11. They don't remember the financial crisis. They don't remember Tony Blair. And they weren't eligible to vote in the 2016 referendum, which is a scary realisation. Liberals, in general, love that argument because it means that they don't have to actually engage with the underlying grievances and the concerns that are fueling this era of disruption. It's a waiting game, basically. Just wait for one generation to die and be replaced by another. The alternative view, which I would argue is rooted more in the evidence in terms of what is actually going on, is that 
we are much closer to the beginning of a new period of disruption. That if you look firstly at the demographics of what's going on in the US and Europe, most of the movements that are disrupting what you might loosely call the liberal consensus are drawing their support from the under 40s, particularly non graduates. If you looked at Matteo Salvini in Italy, if you looked at Marine Le Pen in France, if you looked at Sweden Democrats or the Alternative for Germany or even Trump, they've been doing particularly well among millennials um, and, and my generation, Gen Xers, uh, 30, 40 uh, year olds who are, for various reasons, pissed off with the current economic uh, and political status quo. The second reason why I think we're nearer the beginning of a period of disruption than at the end is that if you just look at the overall issue agenda in the West, the priority list for voters, it's changed radically. Uh, were we having this conversation in the, in the 90s or the 2000s, we probably would have talked a lot about the economy and public services. European Commission's own survey recently asked voters across Europe, what are the most pressing issues for the European Union today? In every single member state except one, the responses, the two most popular responses were immigration and terrorism. The exception was Italy, where it was immigration and unemployment. So the identity security axis, if you want to call it that, is now paramount, uh, and voters want those concerns to be addressed in a competent, meaningful way. Uh, that is not simply racism. This is where many of my friends on the left have gone wrong, that many of those concerns are actually entirely legitimate about the pace of change, uh, scale uh, of migration uh, and demographic churn in the West. Aside from the issue agenda, something as well that we're missing out on is that we're closer to the beginning as well because while publics are very distrustful of the established political parties and political systems, it is also the case that most of our political systems have actually become less representative of the groups that are now abandoning the mainstream. Uh, that if you look at the US Congress, yes, there are more women and minorities than ever before, but uh, there are also more millionaires, more MA holders, PhD holders. And as, as an overall, looking at it from a macro perspective, when half of uh, Americans said before Trump's victory, people like me have no say in government, they're actually, they've got a point. Um, doing some work on Britain, again, ahead of the Brexit referendum, 45% of working class voters said people like me have no say uh, in government. Again, they have a point when the percentage of MPs who have some experience of uh, working class occupations is now down to 3%, while the percentage who have only ever worked in politics is at a record high at 18%. And across the EU, using the European Commission's own data, one in two people now say they have no voice within their political systems. And of course, there's a long tradition of that within liberal democracy, but it is now reaching such heights that it's no mystery as to why many voters are turning to national populist parties. Take the AFD in Germany, the number one source of votes for the AFD were non-voters, people who had never voted at the previous election or two elections before the AFD turned up. At the Brexit referendum, we had about 2 million mainly working class voters that turned out to vote that the opinion polls had missed. And in the Trump electorate, we saw a similar phenomenon. For the first time in a long time, there were groups of voters who feel that they finally have a seat at the table. And consequently, they're turning out and mobilizing to ensure that that seat uh, is filled. Another reason why we're not going to uh, return to sort of cosy, stable, mainstream politics anytime soon is because of what we call de-alignment and, and simply put the fact that 
the percentage of voters across the West who now identify strongly with the main parties is collapsing rapidly. I was amazed that people were surprised by the result in Sweden. If you'd looked at the percentage of voters in Sweden who said, I feel strongly aligned to one of the mainstream parties, over the last 20 years, that's tumbled from 67% to 23%. In Germany, we see the same thing. In the UK, the same thing. In the US, the percentage of people who say they're independent, they're neither Democrat nor Republican, is at a record high. Why does that matter? It matters because we're then going to get incredibly fluid, um, chaotic, volatile electorates that are not voting for a party simply because of socialization, because their parents voted for it or their grandparents voted for it. They're going to be increasingly up for pursuing alternatives from one election to the next. So volatility, or what my friends in the financial service industry call risk, is very much here to stay because the foundations, I mean, in a way... This is a little argument in our book here, which is available at all good bookstores, and so far my mother's the only one who's picked one up, although she's, she's also bought one for all the neighbours, which is nice. Um, the, the argument here is, in effect, you know, none of this is going away. If you step back from the short-term news cycle, you know, and, and you just get away from these rather ridiculous debates about you know, sort of uh, Russia, Cambridge Analytica, what was written on the side of a bus, if you just step back from all of that and you look at the long-term trends that are sweeping through the West... I do not understand how you can reach anything other than the conclusion that disruption, change, volatility has only just begun. Uh, great start, uh, Matthew. And also one of the things I want to tease out with you, though, is the irony of the fact that this all change is happening in some ways because of a reaction against too much change. And that's kind of a weird thing, which is, is that there's a kind of peculiarity of the disruption caused by people who say there was too much imposed on us, things change too rapidly, why don't we respect our traditions? So we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Eliane, I, I, just to say to you that I thought you're, you, you wrote an article on uh, Fukuyama which I thought was really good and, and was one of the things that really made me w- w- want to do this session. Well, I'm delighted that you're here. Uh, Fukuyama's the end of history. Um, didn't quite work out that way. But anyway, uh, uh, your thoughts please. Yes, history seems to have returned for good and bad. So, yeah, I'm interested in, in the things that get disrupted and the things that remain intact. So, 10 years on from the financial crisis, the economic and financial system seems remarkably intact. And yet, what we have is a political crisis, which I think is very interesting. And I suppose what I'm arguing is, is that we may be um, anxious about disruption, we may be opposed to dis- disruption, we may be anti-populist, but actually what I think has happened is that the so-called elites, the establishment, have been pandering to populism and the forces that have brought about disruption for a long time. So, even, so it's as if we're trying to halt disruption, we're trying to sort out our crisis but um, it's a bit like lifting up the the table that we're standing on because we ourselves have been conspiring in the disruption and the populist anti-elitism for a long time. So I want to talk for a few minutes about these terms that, um, that we use all the time that are repeated in the media that I think, despite the acres of commentary, we somehow make, feel that it's hard to, to advance, to see our way through this crisis. And I think part of that is because of these terms that get endlessly repeated. Um, we don't quite ever unpack what they mean. So the term uh, liberal elite, for example, there's all sorts of problems, I think, with this, with this idea of the liberal elite. First of all, it implies that the left... Um, have been powerful for the last four decades, as if, you know, Thatcher, Bush, coalition government, the 
um, present Conservative government hadn't happened. Um, it also cleverly co-opts a, a, a left-wing critique of New Labour. You know, they're not radical, they're sort of centrist liberals. So it's a very clever term, but, but I think that, that this creates this idea of, you know, this deflects public anger um, from the real elites, the real economic elites, and onto elites like intellectuals, the mainstream media, you know, all of us who are sort of penniless, getting by on decreasing um, revenues and so on. So uh, we see this anti-intellectualism, this anti-expert um, discourse, I think as a, as a clever deflection away from the real targets. And I think what, what's happened is that the right have set off a grand conflict um, between the so-called um, left behind and the cosmopolitan middle class left, keeping the real, the real powers um, of uh, finance and, uh, and, and um, big powers and, and, and the, the concentration of wealth in the background. And, um, and this, is, this has worked very well. Away we run with this, um, this conflict in the media and the public conversation. So, obviously, this leaves behind the really important opposition between the interests of the 99% and those of the 1%. And, and those ec uh, opposed economic interests are what used to give rise to ideological polarity. But, of course, ideolo ideology, as Claire mentioned, since um, Francis Fukuyama's seminal 1989 essay, The End of History, it, wait, he said that the great ide the ideological struggles between East and West, left and right, are over... And I think Fukuyama, he's often um, satirised, you know, as being simplistic, but I think that actually that is what this sort of post, supposedly post-ideological consensus has held up pretty well since he wrote that article, that we do think we live in a post-ideological age. But, of course, ideology doesn't disappear. It just goes underground. And I, what I would argue is that it's the right that's been um, covertly dominant. Although, nowadays, you know, it's only the other side that, are, that is ideological. We're just doing what works. And I think one of the problems with populism is that it's anti-ideological. We talk about the people, what the people believe, as if the people held a single set of views. So, yeah, so the emergence of populism then, the, the other um, difficult term that we, we hear all the time. I think the outrageous statements of figures like Trump almost stand in for ideological explicitness, that people, I think, are desperate for, for a political vision that they can rally behind, a vision of what the kind of society that we want to live in, that politicians um, are advocating for. But actually, that's now been sublimated, but it's been buried, and actually what we now have is these outrageous statements you know, um, which are often about cultural values and issues of identity and, um, and not actually political articulation, which is what I want. Um, populism, I think, is also a paradox. You know, in, in a sense, it's, it's an expression of democracy at its purest, um, you know, ruled by the people. What's the difference between populism and democracy when democracy means ruled by the people? What's populism then? And I think of populism as being like a volcano. The lava erupts we get this pure desire for the levers of government, of democracy to work once more, for representation to be actually meaningful. And then the lava um, dries and cools and <coughs> ossifies, and the levers no longer work, which is what we have today. We have a system that's not working. But what my question is, is it, work, is it not working because of fundamental flaws or because of decades of it being hollowed out, uh, it becomes robotic, it becomes corrupted by finance power and the revolving door to business? That question, I think, we, we don't ask enough. So, yeah, so, so populism is a, is a purely political force, but it's also an anti-political force. 
And that's the, the problem that I see with Brexit and Trump is their anti-political nature. So Trump is an anti-political politician. He's in power, but he denounces the, the um, Washington uh, swamp. And Brexit contains a, a strong anti-EU sentiment, but also it's anti-Westminster bubble. And this anti-political um, turn, I think, is, is very damaging because it's being engineered by an anti-system right who are turning the people against the political system. And yes, there are things wrong with the political system as it currently stands, but no one is asking, as I said, whether that's theoretical or circumstantial. And if we turn against politics, we turn against the only system that we have to make a fairer society. So, yeah, so, I, so what I'm arguing for is, is um, and Claire mentioned authority and... Frank and I obviously have written about authority. So I think it's a supremely unfashionable concept these days. And I think we'll talk more about this, but the problem, I think, is that um, politicians, MPs, have lost confidence over the decades. You know, big tech took over our lives on the false rhetoric of democratisation, interactivity, participation. The same loss of confidence or the same kind of false populism has happened in politics. The MPs, you know, we started off with focus groups um, under um, Blair's government. Now we have listening. You know, we, we, we don't speak anymore, we just listen. And obviously we do need to listen to all different kinds of unrepresented voters. But I really want to call for the restoration of legitimate authority in politics because otherwise we don't get represented properly at a high level. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, uh, that was uh, really uh, interesting and useful and challenged some of the things that Matthew said. I'm sure we can kind of tease those out. But um, anyway, for now, Frank. Yeah, I think politics historically means uh, a refusal to defer to fate. Uh, It's about choice and choice making. And one of the things that occurred very clearly in the 1980s with Thatcherite, there is no alternative, is the loss of the kind of capacity to imagine there being an alternative, there being choices. I think one of the wonderful dimensions of the present moment, of what I call the populist moment, or this moment of disruption, is that a lot of people are actually imagining a new kind of politics, and they're imagining that there is an alternative. They do not yet have the voice or the language through which they can express that alternative, but that's the way they experience it. One of the things I've been doing the last couple of months is going around Europe and talking to different kinds of peoples in Italy, Holland, Czech Republic, Hungary, and elsewhere. And one of the recurrent statements that people make to me when I ask them about how they view this particular moment is this. They always say, we're not part of the conversation. We want to be part of a conversation. We're being left out of this conversation. And I can really understand what they are saying and what they are really getting at. However, what they don't understand is that actually there is no conversation going around. It's not that we have this vibrant political culture and they're kind of being marginalized from it. I think they are being marginalized, but not because, because there is this incredibly dynamic political debate taking place. It's just because there's a kind of zombie political moment that has emerged where politicians themselves have become estranged from uh, sort of the the realm of ideas, the the future, and and dealing with that. So one of the things I'm struggling with is trying to make sense as to what is really going on and what are the potentialities of this this moment. The way that I understand what's really taking place is by looking at the cultural drivers that has led 
to this kind of sense of political stasis that occurs, and, and which has led to a situation uh, which I wouldn't uh, use the, the term anti-political, but certainly has led to mo a, a shift from a conservative politics to the domain of the political, the shift to the domain of the pre-political. I think one of the most interesting things that has occurred in European societies is that when you ask what people are concerned about, they principally, and even when you take terrorism, which, which Matthew mentioned, even terrorism kind of rolls back to a pre-political concern with issues like uh, families, with issues like communities, with issues like what it means to be a citizen, with issues like, you know, you know what is our culture really all about? And that's really, in a, in a sense, the, the, the underpinning of so many of the reactions that you get when you talk to people uh, in their everyday life. It's, it's the reason why so many of them are prepared to be uh, hostile to the political system that now exists, why they, why, why they view that they've been excluded. And actually, you know, when you look at the political system, it is interesting the way that it's been inverted. I mean, I don't, know, I don't use the term liberal elite because they're not liberal, uh, that's for sure. But there is, there is an elite, you know, sort of that, that is around. And it's interesting, I've I just been to Italy. And when you look at the political sort of structure in Italy, uh, fortunately, the payday, the old, well, the party of the left didn't do all that well. When you actually look at the payday and their performance and look at their electorate, they are supported by the richest section of the electorate. In other words, the really wealthy people, the professionals, the people with the money, all, you know, vote for payday. When I talked to a group of businessmen in Milan, all of them are multimillionaires. They love the payday. That is really our party. And they regard the other parties, the Five Star Movement and Forza Italian, as savages. I mean, they use a language which kind of very much echoes 19th century racial vocabulary. These are stupid, ignorant savages who have dared to come into Rome you know, and, and taken over. So there has been this massive inversion. And I think the reason for this and, and what's really happening is because we're all struggling in, in the Western world with, with meaning. You know, what, what does it mean? What, you know, what is life really all about? How do we make sense of the uncertainty that we're confronted with? And we haven't got uh, religion anymore. We haven't got the rituals of the past. We haven't got a commitment to liberal or socialist or communist ideology. All those things have become suspended. We, even science, we don't, no longer believe in. And I think under those circumstances, we're kind of having this failure to be able to deal with what I see as being fundamental political issues. We turn them into cultural ones. That's the way that we kind of deal with them as a, as a result of that. And to me, the central problem that we've got to confront and deal with, which I see as being the, what underpins the loss of legitimacy of the old mainstream parties and the loss of legitimacy of the political system, is really a, 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 a fundamental uh, sort of process, which is what I call the loss of judgment. I think that when you look at uh, uh, British or any European society in the West, we are really not very good at making judgments. We revel in the fact that, that judgment is not a good thing. Non-judgmentalism is now seen as being a far superior value than actually making judgments. Whenever we kind of deal with kind of the conventional dimensions of life, we find it very difficult to draw lines. So we're in a world where we you know, no longer find, you know, feel comfortable about saying what, you know, where do, you know, that there's a point at which we can draw a line between an adult and a child. You know, there's a much more kind of fluid way in which we deal with these things. We're no longer that clear about, about you know, where we draw the line between men and women. You know, that's not so uh, black and white as it might have been at one particular time. We confuse the national and the transnational. We make the point that globalism is so strong now 
the end that's done in the domestic sphere is just a joke. There isn't very much you can do, do, deal with it. And most particularly, and this is what affects most people in Europe, is we eroded the line that kind of uh, makes the distinction between citizen and non-citizen. I, I think it's very interesting that people who should know better have lost the language of citizenship. And one of the points that we, we learned from Hannah Arendt is that citizenship is arguably the only medium through which real equality can be realized. It's when, as equal citizen, we enter into the political process that, for a while, we have an equal voice that we need to build on and develop and, 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 and render conscience. And when people in Europe feel that their role as citizen is being undervalued, either because of the immigration policies have been imposed on them, or the way in which they feel that num a variety of technocratic and social engineering uh, sort of missions have been used to manipulate them, they feel that their status, their privilege of being a citizen doesn't really mean very much anymore. I think in the universities, the, the, this kind of loss of judgment takes the form of criticizing what's called binary categories. Somehow it's wrong to have binary categories. I mean, whole of human civilization use binary categories as a way of de developing the capacity to, to think fluidly and dialectically. You need binary categories to begin with. But because we can no longer make the judgments that underpin those kind of categories, all, everything is kind of called into question. And I think it is this loss of confidence in the basic legacies and the values that kicked in, particularly in the Enlightenment, uh, that has led to a, a political situation where there is this continuous focus on the pre-political, on the cultural, and where, in a sense, we have to um, move in with that spirit, not just criticize it, but engage with the cultural concerns that people have. Because unless we can give answers to those kinds of questions, the realm of, of political certainties will become elusive, uh, at least in the medium term. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. A lot, I'm sure there's a lot that we can come back on there. And I think some of these questions around authority actually are, are kind of emerging. It's quite interesting. So, Stephen, your thoughts, please. I think I agree absolutely with the premise of this panel, which is that change is something that should be embraced. But it shouldn't just be embraced. It has to be turned into an opportunity. And in order to turn it into an opportunity, you've got to see it as something which takes you back to the fundamental questions about what you're doing. And I think we are at a moment where this is an opportunity to examine what the purpose of politics is. And obviously, as a Labour politician, I also think it's very important to examine what the purpose of the Labour Party is uh, in that context. And my starter for 10 on that is that the purpose of politics and of political leadership is to unite the country, to unite the country uh, on exactly what Frank was saying, a sense of shared citizenship to stop playing identity politics and to talk far more about what unites us than what divides us. And I think that's been a fundamental failure of uh, politics, particularly of my party. We've spent far too long talking about what divides us and makes us different uh, than what unites us under the banner of shared citizenship. So those divides, uh, we talk a lot about this in the book. I think, broadly speaking, you're seeing fundamental divides between young and old, between city and town, and between graduates and non-graduates. And in the book we, we call, this is a very simplistic term, and please don't hold to me to this on any kind of uh, sociological data, but based purely on my take as an MP representing a constituency in South Wales that has seen the fabric ripped out from its communities 
the decline of its manufacturing sector and the impact that that's had on the sense of community uh, in uh, my constituency. What, I, what we call the two tribes that we think the uh, United Kingdom is now based on are the cosmopolitans and the communitarians. Now, the referendum didn't create those divides and it didn't create those tribes. This has been brewing for decades, as Matthew so rightly points out. Uh, but it certainly sharpened them, it certainly deepened them and threw them into sharp relief. And what's depressing for me is that the general election uh, deepened and further entrenched those divides. My party is becoming increasingly a party of the cosmopolitans. Brilliant that we won in Canterbury and Kensington, but we lost in Mansfield and northeast Derbyshire. Uh, those are seats that have been Labour seats since the 1930s, and they are uh, seats that consist of people that my party was created to represent. So if we are losing touch with those places, then I think we're losing touch with our founding purpose as a party. So what do we do, need to do to build uh, and reunite? Um, clearly, Brexit is a massive issue, but it is not the be-all and end-all. Uh, what we contend in the book is that we need to do two things. We need to get the right sort of Brexit, the Brexit that has, in my view, the only hope of reuniting our deeply divided country. And then we need to make a number of seismic shifts in terms of what the Labour Party says, what it does, and uh, the values that it projects. In terms of the right sort of Brexit, I've been arguing for two years for a Brexit based on uh, going into the European economic area. Uh, in my view, it reflects the mandate. A narrow vote for leave, uh, for me, means a vote to leave the political institutions and deeper integration of the European Union, but to retain a constructive and productive relationship with the single market. It addresses the issue of free movement of labour, which again has been pointed out as was absolutely a driving factor uh, in the referendum, uh, because there are articles within the EEA agreement which enable the suspension of any one of the four freedoms that underpin the single market. It gives us an influential voice because there are well-established institutional mechanisms for EEA countries. And the fact is, given the utter incompetence and chaos of the way that the government has been conducting these negotiations, the EEA actually exists. It's a plug-and-play option. We could uh, move into it, and that would give us the certainty to establish a platform from which we can actually start to make the changes that our country so desperately needs. I think one of the changes has to be that we need to recognise the very important speech that uh, Tony Blair made in 2005 to Labour Party conference, where he said, you know, people tell me that we should stop and debate globalisation. Well, it's like debating whether the autumn follows the summer. And in essence, what Tony Blair was saying was that globalisation is an unstoppable force of nature. Well, I beg to differ. Globalisation is not an unstoppable force of nature. It is something that has to be harnessed with political leadership and, I think, the legitimate authority that Elianso uh, rightly talked about to actually turn it into something that works for the many uh, and not the few. Uh, it, we've seen the collapse of our manufacturing sector in the UK. In the 1970s, it was 30% of our GDP. It is now 9%. In Germany, they've retained it at around 25% of their GDP. That's not because of an act of God or because uh, it's, there's more conducive conditions in Germany. It's because there was political and leadership in Germany to have an industrial strategy that kept their country together, whilst our country has the divides economic, social, and from that identity, values, and culture uh, have become chasms. So what I think the, the, my party needs to do is to make six seismic shifts. We've got to uh, recognise that common bonds 
are far more important than what uh, divides us. And we've got to uh, be a party of social responsibility just as much as we are a party of individual rights. We have to understand that social mobility is important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And I would seriously uh, recommend that we re-examine our pledge on tuition fees in that context, because we've got to think about whether we're a party of the communitarians and the cosmopolitans, or only of the cosmopolitans. And I really think that the tuition fees pledge needs to be put through that prism. We've got to be uh, ready to engage uh, effectively with business as partners, but made to make those changes, particularly in terms of the technopolies that are now running our economy. They've got to be made to pay their way. Uh, we've got to see immigration as a market dynamic uh, not, uh, that must be managed. It's actually, I think, a social democratic value to want to regulate the labour market. You can't regulate the labour market if you can't regulate the supply of what's coming into it. And sixth, we have to be a party of progressive patriotism. Uh, right now, uh, in the party, there are these bizarre conspiracy theories about, um, you know, the United Kingdom has only ever been a source of oppression, imperialism, and colonialism. That is wrong. We should have pride in our country, recognize that we've made some terrible mistakes in the past, yes, but we've also been a force for good in the world, and we should stand up and say that with pride. We should not be talking about NATO as if it was a warmongering junta, uh, and we should uh, be absolutely clear uh, that we will stand up for Britain and believe in Britain, uh, clearly uh, with the, uh, the, the, the mistakes and the challenges that have been made, but we've got to be a party that gives that sense of confidence in the country. Uh, so I think if, if we are going to be a whole nation Labour Party again, if we're going to be a party that speaks for both the cosmopolitans and the communitarians, it's that second group that we are seriously losing touch with. The Labour Party is the only party, in my view, that has a chance of reuniting the country. That is what we're about. Uh, but if we continue down this road that we're going on, we will fail in that task. Thank you very much. Right, I, I, I want to keep this quite sharp. Matthew, some of what Eliane said, just in terms of, you know, the populism being kind of anti-politics, do you recognise that? And, or what's your immediate reaction to it? In the spirit of debate, I mean, I disagree with it because I think our conception of populism has always been one that is basically grounded in protest theory, that this is something that is against something else rather than something that is for. And the debate is very much about you know, whether you view populism as a style or whether you view it as an ideology in your own right. And I think Eliane mentioned it not being ideological. Populism is deeply, uh, deeply ideological. It is fundamentally uh, something that is also inclusive, not just something that is against the system, against minorities. It is saying to people that you are part of a community, a wider group. And that is incredibly potent because many people today remain committed to a rational choice theory approach of political behaviour, that we're all self-interested, profit-seeking lemming, uh, lemmings. And, uh, you know, if it isn't in our economic interest, right, we're not going to support it. What, what effectively populist movements are saying, both on the left and on the right, is that actually individuals are part of broader communities, broader groups, and they think principally about the broader entities in which they are a part. So it's deeply inclusive. That's what gives it the potency that it has. That's what gives it the durability. If it was just against everything, actually these movements wouldn't have deep roots. They wouldn't have that ongoing uh, support. Frank, one of the things that uh, Eliane said in relation to, I mean, obviously, 
we're not just talking about the populism thing, but one of the things that Alian said was in relation to, you know, some of what kind of passes for populism is then actually anti-authority, if you know what I mean, anti-expertise. I mean, there's this kind of thing which kind of appeals, anti-politics. You know, so you're kind of doing pre-politics. You also mentioned the question of authority and kind of, you know, you were saying the boundaries are going, we don't use judgment. Yeah, I know that actually there's a tension between what you're both saying. Do you want to just try and tease that out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the problem is, is that populist movements, like most movements that have emerged, are either consciously or, or, or semi-consciously are looking for some authoritative way of making sense of the world. And I think what they are really reacting against is the way in which the authority of the political has been outsourced into non-political areas. So they're against experts because they're fed up with the fact that uh, decisions that are deeply affect their lives are made by banks who are meant to be independent of, of politics. They are deeply troubled by the fact that they have this uh, process of juridification where it seems to be the case that every time there's a, there's a problem in British society, either the Labour or the Tory party will say, let's have a judicial inquiry rather than debating it out in Parliament and, and, and dealing with this politically or the human, uh, European Court of Human Rights. So that the, the law becomes more and more entrenched in the, in the political life. And I think what they are really reacting to is the way in which there's a dissipation of, you know, sort of what they see as some meaningful authority that could mean something for them. But what they're also concerned about is that the authority of the parents are being undermined, the cultural authority within their communities are being undermined. So at a, at a more local level, we have this kind of process where altogether authority has become this very fleeting, you know, sort of concept that actually you know, Western society and Western culture is deeply suspicious of. So it's not the populist or anti-authority. I would say it's the anti-populist who have become very casual and very promiscuous in the way they've dismissed cultural authority in a number of domains of social experience. Well, one, of, one of the things that, that you were saying, Elian, and you can just come back on any of this, but was, you know, kind of the real power is lying over here and everyone's over there having this, this other argument. Um, but one of the things that does seem to have happened is that things are thrown up. I mean, this relates to some of the things that Stephen said, but it, it seems to me that things that look the same, like political parties, just aren't the same anymore, right? Um, you know, that, that it's kind of, it's hard to know what the contemporary Labour Party is. But in terms of, as you say, it's traditional voters, it's all sort of changed. I mean, it, it, it was almost a little bit conspiratorial, what you were saying, I, I, I felt. I, I, I was kind of slightly concerned. I don't even know that you meant that, but, I, but it felt as though you were sort of saying, they're distracting us while they're over here. Yeah. Well, right, but, yeah. you know, is it really like that? Well, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, right? But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I do think that there has been a concerted attempt by people like Steve Bannon to shift the debate away from the real opposition, the real um, economic power, you know, economic inequality, which is not going away, it's getting worse. But the, the, do you think there's been a concerted attempt to shift the debate onto the territory of culture? And that's the advent of the culture wars, where it's a, it's a post-political drive, or, or we can't ever be post-political, but it's an attempt to move the ground away, away from politics and away from economics and onto the grounds of culture. And I think, um, conspiracy or not, that has been 
a declared and effective manoeuvre. And hey, presto, we are all talking in, in cultural terms. And I think it's very interesting. I mean, it's very interesting. The point about authority, I think, there's all sorts of tensions and paradoxes that, you know, that the, the communitarians are pro-authority. They do argue that those useful binaries have broken down. Um, but at, at the same time, they're very iconoclastic towards the existing um, political establishment. But for me, um, that's about the fact that... that that the political establishment is not behaving like a proper parent. You know, that political, that's what I want, is, is politicians and MPs to, to, to take their position as, as leaders and, and actually look after things properly rather than deferring to the people and also giving up their power to finance and, and corporate power. Again, returning cons- conspiracy. I mean, I think the, the point about, um, about the class wars and identity, I mean... You know, Stephen, you're talking about the shift towards these new binaries that are emerging, you know, the somewheres and anywheres in David Goodhart's phrase, um, the cosmopolitans and communitarians. Um, you know, they, well, there used to be a historic alliance between the middle class and the working class left, and I agree with you that that's broken down. But I think that uh, it's, it's really dangerous if we, if we go into that post-ideological territory, because you know, this word d- divisive, that's how ideology became toxic, was that, you know, people were saying... Uh, you know, the House of Commons, it's so tribal, they're all shouting at each other like, to- you know, my, my own toddler behaves better than them and so on. But, you know, I think the word divisive is, is a positive word, actually. If you're talking about democratic opposition, we want clear blue water between these competing visions of how society should be run. The problem is, is when, when we're divisive in terms of identity, in terms of, yeah, whether you live in the countryside or the city, whether you're educated to um, university level or not. Those personal divisions become incredibly toxic, whereas actually an inclusive um, democratic society is one where we're allowed to have democratic debates which are not toxic. It's a productive democratic debate. I mean, one of the things, Stephen, just finally before I come out to the audience is that it seems to me that both Labour and the Tories, I mean, both parties have bought into the technocratic aspect of of kind of managing the economy, managing society, managing the behaviour of people, doing to people over recent years. And that was part of the exclusion from the conversation. As Frank said, it, you, you felt like you were excluded from the conversation, even if the conversation was how to nudge us into behaving the way they wanted. Not necessarily an interesting conversation to be involved in. Nonetheless, both sides did it. I, I thought it was interesting yesterday, Tim Montgomery, I think, tweeted uh, conservatives saying, we should learn from history that there's no... The Conservative Party does not have a God-given right to exist. Mm. It could just disappear. And so could the Labour Party. And to a certain extent, even from what you're saying, I know you're in the Labour Party, but I can't help but think, can't they both go away, please? No, but I mean, don't, don't we need a new... I, I, no, well, I wasn't, no, I wasn't trying to do a populist turn there. Um, I, what I mean is, couldn't we do with a kind of shake-up of the political parties? Because it feels like trying to cram everybody into the, what's there from the past doesn't work. And you're, you're trying to... I understand, because it's your party. But without doing a party political answer, try and answer... You'll never get one of those from me. Um, uh, look, I mean, I, I can sort of relate back a bit the experience of thousands of conversations I've had on the doorstep in my constituency. And the vast majority I, I, of people I speak to on the doorstep in my constituency are pragmatists and realists. But they're also angry. They do feel that they've been left behind and ignored by this sort of cosmopolitan Westminster bubble. And there's no doubt at all that that communitarian backlash was a vital part of what led to the uh, Brexit vote uh, in in June 2016. 
Um, but they are, they are also uh, pragmatists and realists in, in the sense that they, they know if their car's broken down, they need a mechanic to fix it. And they accept that we need members of parliament and we need the House of Commons uh, to uh, drive the country forward and, yes, to have the fights and the arguments. And they don't mind some of the fighting and the arguing, but they are also deeply concerned about the level of polarisation. And there's no doubt that the shift towards uh, the hard left in the Labour Party and the shift, the reverse takeover of the Conservative Party by uh, a hardcore of English nationalists, most of my constituents find that deeply worrying because they know that the world is a complex place. And you do, I'm afraid, have to have some quite boring shades of grey sometimes in order to keep the show on the road. So I think there is a, a malaise growing. Uh, when I talk to my constituents, they say, wow, you know, we, we had the Brexit vote. We just wanted to blow the safe doors off, you know, like the Michael Caine uh, in the Italian job. Uh, and instead, that we've caused this explosion. Uh, but now we want our MPs to get together and sort it out. But I also agree that our first-past-the-post electoral system is utterly unfit for purpose. And one of the big problems we have is that we're trying to create, we're trying to push these two, sort of, or three or four um, uh, deeply centrifugal forces into the same box. I'm an active member of Make Votes Matter, and I'm, I've been campaigning for proportional representation for many years. We need, if we want to have an honest, transparent form of politics, we need to have an honest and transparent party system. The only way we'll get that is through proportional representation. Right, okay. Um, yes, yeah, so. Where can I stop? Hi there. Um, this thing about authority, Stephen was talking about authority, and what, what that sounded like was uh, <clears throat> advocacy, because uh, the people I know, and the kind of people I grew up with, they didn't like authority. And I kind of think, if I said to them, I'm going to speak for you, they'd be thinking, well, you're getting above yourself. It's almost like, so it's almost like you need to argue with them instead of advocating for them, you almost have to convince them that, you know, you have to challenge them, argue with them, and win them over. But the idea that you're going to just go out and advocate on behalf of them, I think people are also rebelling against that. I'm a head teacher, and um, it's quite interesting what the gentleman just said over there. I get parents uh, complaining to me when I say their child can't have a learning support assistant because high-needs funding has been halved. But yet, if I put a letter together with my weekly newsletter explaining the fact that the head teachers went to Westminster to complain about the funding crisis in our schools... I get parents uh, criticising me for that. So I get squeezed into this kind of... I'm supposed to kind of have some kind of um, power over what happens in the school, but I'm not to, allowed to have a view on it. So it's a very similar thing to what you were saying, and I think it le links into what Frank was saying. I asked this question earlier at a talk, but it's really much more suited to this panel. Um, <laughs> uh, a lot of the... Um, moral discourse and the behaviour from the left has been tending towards authoritarianism over the last few years. And a paper was just published in the Journal of Political Psychology that found, was titled The Loch Ness Monster, Left-Wing Authoritarianism in America, which found that the left can be just as authoritarian as the right. Um, so my question is, why do you think this has come about now? Is it a problem and how can we solve this or move towards a better environment? 
I just wanted to see if we could move towards talking about what lines might there be, Frank, because you were suggesting that some of them are still more evident than people say that they are, like male, female, etc. But I'm not sure that that, that isn't a kind of way in which we could organise politics. So are you saying that we need to invent some new lines or that there are lines to be discovered? Do these match up with some kind of social demographics or social groups or are they entirely to be invented? Or is there grounds for a different kind of politics altogether? And related to that, how do we roll back from the pre-political back into the political. One of the ways I was thinking we could do this is to roll back public health uh, and the way in which public health has become the way in which we try to tackle every single social issue from knife crime to poverty to um, family breakdown to mental health, absolutely everything, and Wales worse than anywhere else, actually. Public health has expanded massively to try to provide the meaning that Frank says is missing, but actually entirely avoids the conversation, which is why people feel voiceless, I think. I wonder if the panel find it useful to analyse politics in terms of the balance between individual rights and collective interests. And it seems to me that over the last few decades, the balance has gone firmly in favour of individual rights. And that's very much what ordinary people are reacting against. Um, by individual rights, I think I'm talking about the people who see the world in terms of how well they do as individuals. They're usually well-paid, highly mobile, highly educated, professional people, the elite, if you like. Whereas if you are not in that narrow strata, in other words, one of your great majority of people, then, of course, you're bound to be far more interested in the family, in your community, and in citizenship. Because apart from the fact that those institutions, collective institutions, are important for you, they are also where you are equal, because you are just one of many like everybody else. And it's that imbalance which has developed over the last few years, which it seems to me populism is trying to address? Uh, it's a question, uh, predominantly for Matthew, but um, because you raised it, but I'd be interested in views around. Um, you mentioned that politics, uh, that populism is politics, but I'd be interested in the way those, that that represents, because it looks a lot like single issue uh, to me, and it, it's a lot like the sort of protest that I've seen with very little engagement that actually bring people together to make changes that have complexity and rather simply vote against something. Hi, I'm Sebastian Payne. I'm a political journalist at the FT. I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things here. You know, I've read about politics for the FT for almost three years now, and everything the FT thinks about the world has been challenged. Globalisation, liberal democracy, free speech, free markets, all that kind of stuff, it's been thrown up in the air. But what strikes me is the real thing of the future is the populists that we sort of got now, they're actually pretty crap. Like, as you point out on the panel, Brexit, complete shambles. Donald Trump, he's not very good at what he's doing. What happens if what comes next is actually very good at what they're doing? So if what comes after Trump is Trump on steroids, a very effective operator, or whoever comes after the current um, leaders of the political parties are really good at speaking to English nationalism or Welsh nationalism or whatever it may be, because... At the moment, that seems to be the one thing that's holding together our consensus, that the people who embody a more traditional view of politics are still much more effective. People like Tony Blair, who we hear from every 30 seconds. I was interested in what someone said about the diffusion of power from politicians and representation um, into sort of fields of experts and to juries. Um, I was wondering what you thought about the sort of the EU structure um, and whether that takes... Uh, immediate control away from people and whether Brexit might have been a part of that rebellion. 
Hi there. Um, I was interested in Stephen's point about um, globalisation and sort of uh, implying that the Labour Party should be, I guess, not taking such a global uh, outlook. Um, but the issues I'm worried about, global warming, um, tax havens, they all need to be tackled globally. Why don't we have a major political party taking a global outlook? Okay, thank you. Right, loads of questions. You can't answer them all, so just pick up a couple of points, Matthew, that you want to start with. I'll just move along. Yeah, those were. Uh, I'd like to answer them all. The okay. the issue, I think the, the the question that we've been debating, perhaps a little quietly uh, over the last three to five years, has been this this idea of post liberalism and and what does that really look like? And that's come through various things like red red Toryism with with Philip Blond, Blue Labour with with Morris Glasman, and now in, in Germany move, movements like Rise Up. And I think we're going to quickly move into a, a somewhat of a different debate, which I think one of the questions picks up on, which is this debate about post populism, which is you know what what actually comes after the current wave of populists that we have at the moment and I sort of actually I disagree with 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 a couple of the points I think the populists that we have at the moment are actually getting a lot of things done I think if you looked at Trump in the US and you know you can see this pretty clearly in the data Trump has a lot to shout about in 2020 he has a lot of things to say right if you're a conservative republican you know you've got tax cuts um, he's building the wall he stood up to China he's got a partial travel ban um, he's uh, speaking for ordinary people. He's given you a conservative Supreme Court. I mean, there's a lot of things that he can dangle in front of his electorate. And, of course, the, the premise, particularly on the liberal left, I would argue, is that these moments could only lead to Armageddon, right? That Brexit, Trump, Salvini in Italy, they could only lead to Armageddon. And I think the big challenge to perhaps you know, the, the sort of the FT, the Economist, and so on is, well, these moments aren't leading to Armageddon. Right, these moments aren't, and and that taps into a really interesting notion, which is, which is a concept of the alternative state. This isn't to defend people like Trump and to defend people like Salvini, but to say that the Blair argument was that there is a train hurtling at three hundred miles an hour, and you're on it, and you can't get off it. So you might as well stay on and just wait and see where it takes you. The last five years have shown clearly to people that if they want, they can get off the train. They can vote for movements that have a different conception of society. You might find it a challenging one, but it's you can get off the train. You can reform the political, social, economic settlement. So now the ball is back in the court of the liberal left, which is how do you respond to that? How do you convince people to get back on the train? And that's going to be a much harder battle because when I look at social democrats and the left across Europe, I don't see anything close to a meaningful reply. I just see historic losses. And the only reason we haven't seen those historic losses is because we have the first-past-the-post system, which hides the tensions that are tearing social democracy apart in every other Western state. OK, thanks. Eliane, anything you want to pick up? I mean, I, yeah, I'm anti-technocracy, and I think that the, the rise of technocracy... Um, you know, which has been shown by the EU, let's not forget what happened to Greece, that is responsible for the rise of populism. But we now have, um, you know, populism, I do think is anti-ideological because it's, it's, a, it's a critique of, the, of democracy not working properly, at least on the left. So, so left populism um, is a critique of the democratic system not functioning as it should. Right-wing populism is a critique of the political system per se, um, and you know, and it believes uh, sort of 
favours um, immigrants and so on. So that's why I'm... And I, and I think that there's a problem, which is that left populism has, has been faltering across Europe. But I think that let's not forget the relative successes of the Sanders campaign in the States, you know, and, and Corbynism here amongst young people. You know, in a way, these seem like dinosaur movements. See, these are the granddads of, you know, harking back to the ideological 1970s and 80s. But on the other hand, you know, they, they've kind of energised and, and activated huge swathes of young political activists who have been, um, who, who subscribe to their ideological vision. I think in terms of, you know, do we need to um, invent new words? Well, perhaps, because I do think the old, the old terms, right and left, are toxic. But I think there's a way in which, you know, we don't have to just think, well, is this about economics or is it about culture? If you look at, it's very interesting, when we're thinking about the, the so-called left-behind communities, you know, there's a lot of talk of, you know, did they vote against their interests? Well, no, because this is not just about economics, right? This is about um, community, it's about belonging and so on. But I don't actually think there's a dichotomy between the two. And I think that if people have dignity of labour because they work for a nationalised industry that's not being sold off and parceled out, if they have a wealth, if they're supported by a welfare state that supports them in, the, in the, all the vulnerable stages of their lives, you know, these, these are political values, they're also econ economic um, values, but they're, they're that's what politics is. It's a fusing of those pre-political and um, political values. Stephen. I think the red thread going through all of those questions is, what does it mean to have control? People want and need and should have a sense of control over their own destinies. And the fundamental failing of the populists is they uh, sell nationalism as control. But the fact of the matter is we live in a deeply interdependent and interconnected world. So the way to combat the nationalists is to go onto their territory and say, you want to have a conversation about sovereignty? You want to have a conversation about control? Well, I'll tell you what sovereignty is. Sovereignty is the ability to uh, exercise your free will and your choice on your own territory. But the fact of the matter is, as you so rightly pointed out, there are many, many issues, immigration, climate change, how to deal with the global uh, technopolies, uh, they cannot be dealt with at purely a national level. And that's the argument that we have to win. Take back control, yes, I agree. But take back control through a simplistic idea that you can pull up the drawbridge and simply exercise uh, all of your own um, authority in one uh, isolated nation-state. That's a fallacy. But what we also have to recognise is that communitarians in particular are localists. And that's absolutely right. That is something that we as a party need to sign up to uh, fully. Uh, that means handing back control to local communities. There's some really interesting work going on around the country now, particularly in Preston, where they're totally reforming the way they do public procurement to maximise the value that goes to local communities and to the local economy through public procurement. So we don't have to just allow uh, this uh, kind of uh, orthodox view that the big corporations can just steamroller through privatisation, outsourcing, contracting out. That's taking back control. At a national level, it means, yes, the nation-state exercises its free will. And in fact, the big myth is that uh, the European Union was controlling everything that we do. I've been an MP for three years. Not a single bill that's gone across uh, the floor of the House of Commons has where, where we've had to go and check it uh, with the EU. The budget, education, health, uh, culture, media and sport, these are national competencies. We, so we've got to bust some of these myths. 
But we do also have to recognise that uh, the European Union has been too top-down. Uh, the integrationist surge that came after Maastricht did not have democratic consent. Uh, and I think there's a huge opportunity now with Brexit to completely re-engineer the architecture of the European Union, to have an outer ring of countries that are never going to be part of the Euro, such as the UK, the Scandinavians, Central and Eastern Europeans, and to build a new sort of European Union that actually has the democratic consent of its citizens. But the first battle to win is, what does sovereignty actually mean? Yeah, I mean, I think we have a very good opportunity to reimagine sovereignty, and it's thanks to the populists that both national sovereignty and popular sovereignty has kind of come back on the agenda. I'm particularly interested in what Matt is going to say about that, because I think that's one of the things I hear all the time, is how important sovereignty is for us when you talk to individuals. And I think that uh, at the risk of, uh, you know, sort of making myself very unpopular, I want to argue that populism can actually work quite effectively, answer to the FD guy. For example, I'm Hungarian, and if you go to Hungary, which, by the way, has got a very bad press that bears no relation to the situation in Hungary, you'll find that the Hungarian government is now introducing a bill, which is probably the most progressive. I know they would hate me to call it progressive, but it's the most progressive family policy that I've come across, where essentially basically saying that every child from the age of three onwards has got a place in a nursery, and they're making nursery education uh, absolutely, you know, you know, kind of, they're kind of running it out all over the country because they reckon that's the only way they can bring up the poor to the same level as the rich, so they're interested in social mobility. If you look at their policy on the countryside, you know, they've got uh, a, a welfare system that they uh, kind of put in there, everything from public works to a whole other thing, which is why they want ev in every single constituency in the countryside, bar one, because people, you know, sort of recognize that these policies really work for them. They've got a policy on, um, on mortgages and housing where people with children are, are, are kind of put to the fore. They've got some bad policies as well, like, you know, the one on abortion. But by and large, they've actually made the Hungarian economy work quite well. It's relatively prosperous. And, you know, if you look at, you know, sort of if you go to Budapest, you'll find how that kind of regime can work very, very effectively. you would be surprised by it. But, you know, that's not to say that they're, you know, God's gift to, you know, sort of political life because there's a lot of problems with them as well. But I think that can work. And the reason why it can work is because taking back control, you know, sort of uh, through uh, a sovereign state does have some meaning. I had a very interesting discussion last week with a couple of people in, in the Czech Republic, which was like a light bulb moment for them because they were talking about the need for a new party. And I said, look, in England, we're also talking about the need for a new party. So what do you mean? And she said to me, well, what I really mean by a new party, it's got to be a party that does three things. It needs to have socially communitarian values when it comes to the family, slightly conservative, taking families seriously. It needs to have liberal values when it comes to choice making and the freedom and free speech and all the rest of that. And it needs to have social democratic values when it comes to welfare provision and all the rest of that. So it needs to have these three contradictory things all within one party. And what she was really uh, personifying in her views was this kind of de-alignment that Matthew was talking about, where you know, they're looking for a party that does these three things to them, which historically have been provided by parties of, with very different kind of complexions, but which now you know, sort of are, are, are what people are looking for. And if a party can, can emerge that answers these kinds of questions, then I think some of these illiterate populist parties that we have at the moment, like UKIP and all the other ones, uh, can you know, give way to parties that are more intelligent, that have got a more balanced way of dealing with the problems of society. 
Okay, thank you. Hi there, everyone. Yeah, I'm Ben Cobley. I, I wrote The Tribe, um, The Liberal Left and the System of Diversity. Um, I wanted to raise um, something that Eliane said. Um, she, she said that we, we shouldn't use the phrase uh, liberal elite, that it's uh, a category that doesn't exist. And I was just thinking, um, isn't this something that elites do, is, is deny language to their political opponents? And, and, and also, I've been saying that... Um, Populists, for example, are, are, are anti-political or not political. I mean, again, that, that seems to be denying language. I mean, they're obviously political. They're just against a certain form of politics which is in power. And I, I find this, this attempt to control language um, very interesting. It's actually a, tri uh, sorry, a, a chapter in my book. Um, but anyway, I wanted to get some comments on that. So Frank... Um, the progressive policies you described from Hungary, which I personally subscribe to as well, are well described in the Labour Party manifesto, which perhaps Stephen Kinnock would probably... Which manifesto? The Labour Party manifesto from the last election, which no doubt Stephen Kinnock will talk to, you, talk to you about after the meeting today. I agree particularly with the points you're making uh, about control. I've reflected on I work in the technology industry, and I see it... Um, um, you quoted Harold Wilson. I see some of those points that Harold Wilson made 50 years ago but the white heat of technology and science change. I think there's a reaction, and I observe it in workplaces that I've been working in, around not having the skills, the experience, the capabilities, the fear that people have. And we're told all the time about how any job is open now for de-skilling going forward in the future, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're an accountant, all professions that we thought were safe. Nothing is safe from AI and robotics, and it's going to happen at a pace exponentially. We thought it was going exponentially, but it's increasing all the time. So I think the drive to populism, yes, there's lots of different factors, but I think fundamentally there's a lot of fear that people have, particularly those ones post those 2,000 students that you've got, people like me and others in, in my era and, and perhaps a little bit younger, who fear that. So I think that's perhaps part of the kickback with populism. Hi there. So, yeah, I want to come back on the point of the uh, electoral system. So, um, Stephen, you said that you were for the kind of more proportional representation system, but we talked about control and um, technocracy and this communitarian cosmopolitan argument. But don't you see that in most countries, that perhaps in the EU, that have this more proportional system where parties must come together and form coalitions, that's exactly the manifestation of the grievances that people have. For example, in Sweden, people vote for, Sweden, for Swedish Democrats for the immigration issue, but yet the mainstream Swedish parties refuse to listen to them or even come into coalition with them. So effectively, they're ignoring a large issue the Swedish population has. And then the second point is that if you cite that immigration is such an um, existential issue to many European countries, then why is there no main thrust of argument coming from centre-ground parties that can rationally deal with it? Why do you think it's still kicked into the long grass and not dealt with head on? Stephen mentioned in his opening remarks that he thought the electorate were pragmatic, the sort of people who would call out a mechanic if their car was broken. That, I think, begs the question, what sort of problem might one have in which one's instinct would be to call out a mainstream politician for <laughs> assistance? Sometimes it feels a bit like calling out a plumber because you need emergency dentistry or something. But my, my more serious point is this. Haven't the political class failed in recent years, decades perhaps, because there seems to be, this isn't directed at Stephen's party any more than the others, there seems to be no human ill no economic difficulty, no social problem whatsoever for which politicians don't claim to have a solution. Virtually every single aspect of human life 
Politicians of all stripes claim that their intervention will make better. Having made such a claim, and in the eyes of many failing to deliver on those solutions, hasn't that at least led to pretty substantial disillusionment from those who haven't done very well out of the system? I, I just want to slightly simplify the economic crisis we're in and draw, draw on just Blue Labour and Red Tory. It seems to me that the electorate have been saying the same thing for maybe as much as 40 years or even more, which is that they want social and cultural conservatism and they want economic radicalism. And that's what they want. And the Tory party might give them social and cultural conservatism, but it refuses to give them economic radicalism. And the Labour Party wants to give them economic radicalism, but refuses to give them social and political conservatism. And that's, if I can horrendously simplify it, because obviously it's a lot more complex than that, that seems to be the crisis we're in. And until something comes forward and breaks out of that, and I uh, helped Stephen with his paper to, to try and begin to do that, is that that is the crisis we're in. And yes, more complexity, but that seems to me just to absolutely encapsulate it. And it seems to me that we've been denying the electorate that for a lot longer than we think we have. Yeah, I think my point's quite similar, actually, to, to the point that's just, just been made. Um, and I, I, I want to address specifically the, the new political party. I mean, part of the, it strikes me that if we cast our minds back, say, 40 years, there, there, some things were not that different. Certainly in the UK, we had, we had the National Front pushing for third place in a number of... Uh, uh, constituencies. Then we had the Labour Party with its issues around uh, the militant tendency. And what happened then was the creation of the SDP, the Social Democratic Party. So I guess my question or my point is, if there is to be a new party, that sort of takes the points that, that Frank uh, was outlining there. How do we make it a radical party? How do we make it more than just a coming together a bolt-on of, of, of policies that have failed with, with the other parties? How do we make it more than the sum of its parts and really does address the, 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 the problems of those people who feel they've been left behind. Frank talked about uh, pre-political authority and at the minute they're trying to pass a bill in Scotland to ban smacking. So this isn't hard smacking, this is any, any sort of light smacking would be made a criminal offence. But this isn't, Rupert Murdoch isn't pushing this or big capital, it's the Greens it's liberals, so-called leftists. Uh, even the conservatives haven't, haven't taken a party line on it. Um, so I'm interested in what Eliane thinks about this, because 75% of the population oppose this and oppose the idea that smack, giving your child a light smack is a form of child abuse and should be criminalised. And that seems significant to me. It seems significant that it's undermining parental authority. So I'd be particularly interested in hearing what you think about that as an issue and the extent to which you have to recognise that this is um, a divide that seems to exist in society between a certain outlook amongst illiberal elites and the public. So, uh, my name is Neil Stewart. I filmed uh, Stephen's book. You seem to be saying that the, uh, there's a dichotomy between populists and mainstream political parties, but aren't you really saying that mainstream political parties are failing because they've forgotten to be or how to be populist. Right. Um, if you take, if you look back to the coverage of the Labour Party demanding the founding of the NHS and the hysterical response of medicine and half the Conservative Party, that was a huge populist appeal uh, which overturned a lot. And interestingly, the same happened when Mrs Thatcher suggested 
you know, selling off council houses. Everybody went into a huge spasm. So if the mainstream political parties are going to recover, what is the best populist policy they could adopt? And what would your preference be? My preference is to take all the applications at AAB to Russell Group Universities and put them into a lottery so that all the kids from Stephen's constituency have exactly the same chance as anybody else of getting into the top universities. Uh, what's your preference for a populist policy that could work? Just uh, uh, as, I, as I take the panel to sum up, I mean, the, w the one thing that I would say, which I think somebody else made the point on, which I think we have to be very careful of, is in all of this, we've all just happily adopted the concept of populism, whereas actually... At last year's festival, we spent a lot of time saying, what does anyone mean by populist? And I think that your point at the end there is, is that sometimes populist is used to describe things that are popular, but not with the people who presently run things. And they, and they kind of, populism has also been used as a way of delegitimizing, this came up in the opening session, as a word is often used to delegitimize a different set of values or a different set of beliefs. Because wherever one stands on the Brexit vote or indeed the, the, the Trump vote or wherever one stands in relation to what anyone has said here, it is galling and infuriating that those who have um, uh, um, um, gone for blowing open the safe or whatever are then accused of being racist, xenophobe, stupid, ignorant, bloody blah, deplorables, and we're all familiar with it. And it doesn't matter with what side you're on. I can assure you that that's not going to win hearts and minds, whichever way we go, right? It's, uh, it, it's fairly inevitable. So um, in, in the reverse order then, um, uh, and therefore starting with you, Stephen, your final thoughts, please. Well, I mean, there, there's clearly, uh, you know, trying to pull all this together again, one of the things that comes through, I think, is frustration with the current state of our politics and this constant uh, discussion about a new party. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I was very struck by what Frank said there with uh, your, your friend there, Frank, saying, well, what we need is, you know, we need communitarianism on the family, we need um, radical economic policies, uh, which are social democratic and, and Keynesian. Uh, and uh, we need, you know, a, a vision that pulls the country together. I actually think the Labour Party, as it currently stands, ticks a lot of those boxes. Our, our uh, manifesto in 2017, uh, it was radical economics, which said this is not working anymore, and we've got to invest. You know, I'm an out-and-out -out Keynesian. I, it's clear that austerity doesn't work. It's clear that it divides the country. It's part of the chasm that's opened up between London and the southeast and the rest of the country. And we need radical economic policies based on investment, creating jobs, build, rebuilding our creaking infrastructure. The, the problem that we have is on national security. And the fact is that we've got these crazy conspiracy theories uh, which um, place us uh, as a party that people are, would worry about in terms of national security. The response on Russia was far too slow. Finally, we've come round to the view that it was the, uh, the government and the intelligence services should be believed more than uh, Russia today should be believed. Uh, uh, we, the anti-Semitism crisis, this idea that there, there are people on the hard left who believe that the world is run by a shady cabal of Jewish financiers. It is an absolute disgrace and it needs to be stamped out and taken out of our party. But these things really do matter. They really do 
uh, cut through, and it's, it's stopped. The, these conspiracy theories are preventing our party from putting forward that radical uh, economic policy, which I think can genuinely change the country. The point, just that final point on PR, because that was directed uh, to me particularly. Uh, I think the, it, we, it goes back to, I suppose, my opening comment, which is, what is the purpose of politics? And if the purpose of politics is to unite, then uh, there's two things that will not unite us. One is another referendum. We know that that will be a deeply divisive process. I'm sure there's a range of views on having another referendum on Brexit in this room, and that probably would be the subject of another two-hour panel. Unfortunately, we're not going to have that time. But, and the other is that first-past-the-post is deeply divisive because it creates the frustration, the vacuum, the feeling that there is not a political voice uh, that represents you and your views. So whilst I agree that people have serious reservations about some of the coalition building that has to happen and some of the uh, discussions that have to happen in order to create a governing platform in a PR system, I, I think that that is more than compensated for by the feeling that your vote actually counts. You go to the ballot box and when you vote for a particular party, that vote translates into a vote. I'm no big fan of UKIP, but it is absurd that you can have a party in 2015 that got four million votes and one MP. Any political system that delivers that is frankly uh, a laughing stock and it needs to be changed. So uh, there's, you know, there, there's some big uh, questions that need to be answered, but I think if we stick to the principle that the purpose of politics is to unite and to create a sense of shared citizenship, then we can't go far wrong. Yes, so uh, I mean, I think Claire is right to uh, tell us to be careful about how we use the word populist, but we, we roughly know what we mean. And I think that the uh, principal driving force of this phenomenon uh, is the quest for solidarity. I think there's a genuine aspiration for solidarity. People do not always know what that means or what that looks like or give it a name, but that's the thing you can feel is in the air everywhere you go. And I, I think on balance that's a good thing because human solidarity has always been uh, one of the essential underpinnings of every kind of uh, positive step forward throughout uh, our history. I think the key question for me that comes out of this discussion and more widely what's been happening is the necessity of taking sovereignty seriously. I think sovereignty has been trivialized and it's, and it's been turned into pretty much of a dual concept over the years. It's always been seen as a second order principle. Globalization is there, sovereignty is somewhere down on the floor. You know, what does it really mean? You know, why is it important? I think the, the reason why it's really important, you know, if we actually take ourselves seriously, is because in this world that we live in, it's inconceivable that you can have the kind of radical politics that some people here are outlining unless you have some sovereign control over your destiny. It's impossible to imagine how you could have some creative ways of, 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 of providing for the kind of childcare that we need in the 21st century to allow all parents to have genuine independence so they can make their way in the world. It's inconceivable that we can have a real a civilized kind of health service and a really you know, sort of functioning uh, system of, of, of safety nets unless it's in the context of a, of a, of a sovereign state where sovereignty is, is really seen as very, very important. And that brings me back to this question of, of citizenship, <clears throat> which is why at the moment citizenship seems to be, a, 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 again, a second-order concept precisely because citizenship can only come alive in a sovereign context. It's only when people feel that they have some special status, some special privileges that is linked to their citizenship, that the, 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 the being of a citizen uh, 
and being uh, involved in politics actually carries some kind of meaning for them. If citizenship just basically means a piece of paper that you can take or leave, as, as it is at the moment, I don't think that you, know, you can expect the kind of constructive, positive uh, development. So what I would suggest is that what's really important for me is not whether there are new parties or old parties or whatever. I think the question is, is being able to take sovereignty uh, sort of, kind of seriously, because that's what's going to be, mean uh, the possibility of a more positive democratic future. Yeah, so just starting with the question, am I an elitist who's denying my opponent's language? I mean, do I look like an elite? I mean, you know, compared to an investment banker at BlackRock or the Koch brothers or Robert Mercer, I don't think so. I think what my opponents are doing is turning language on its head. You know, we look at a political system in crisis, the mainstream media, you know, papers closing down um, every year, um, you know, experts, acade academia is in crisis... Those are the good authorities. They are being hammered, and yet the solution that we're having is let's bring down those elites. Well, they're not elites, okay? The elites are somewhere else. Okay, the second point, um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, this Blue Labour point. Um, I mean, I believe that um, if you don't have a strong state, you know, the state also is the S word. It's now become a, a taboo word now, and we're all supposed to be autonomous, you know, co-producing our care and so on. Um, but actually, if you don't have the state, you don't have these macro big solutions, big politics, um, top-down state, very, again, very unfashionable, then we can't have strong families because the parents are going out to work three jobs because they can't um, afford to, to be a strong family. So um, those things go together. And I agree with you about the... I mean, I think what, about in terms of smacking, I mean, I don't want to take a view on that particular issue, but I think that what governments are doing is they're renouncing their, author, their good authority to actually run things, um, but instead they're meddling in private affairs. So, you know, rather than... So Michael Gove de um, determining the, the um, specifics of the curriculum, but not actually funding schools... You know, the thing about populists is that they, the problem for me is that they influence mainstream politics. So, so mainstream politicians lose their nerve, um, they don't take a stand, give up their, their role as um, representatives of our concerns. And, you know, I don't want, what I want is a, is a politics that benefits people to be popular. I don't want populism, I want popular politics that benefits the majority. Uh, I, I recently read uh, Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened, and, um, and I, and I realised she, she still doesn't know what happened. Um, and when I, um, when I look at um, the people's vote in the UK, uh, or social democracy uh, across Europe, I, I see the same problem, which is a pretty glaring disconnect between what people are thinking about and talking about and wanting and what those political projects uh, are offering. Uh, the question that runs through uh, all of those um, political movements is, I think, a simple one, which is what are you willing to concede? Uh, what are you willing to concede? Because continuing with economic and social and cultural liberalism as a formula is simply a recipe for failure. It's out of step with the macro context that we're all living in. 
I completely echo the point raised. The combination today is very much about cultural conservatism and a more radical economic interventionism. That's very clear. But I look at folks on the left and I don't see much interest in conceding policy ground in a meaningful uh, way. And until they do that, what we will see is what we're continuing to see, currently seeing across Europe, and which there's a lot of evidence for now, which is a steady but relentless policy uh, shift to the right on uh, migration, integration, uh, and economics. And unless the left can find a way of getting back in the game, I mean, it's almost a cliche to say, but there is no guarantee that political ideologies should live forever. That when you're looking at social democrats on their lowest numbers since the 1880s, we are living in truly historic times. And there is no guaranteed road back into electoral relevance for parties that, and political figures that refuse to accept how our politics is realigning. 